It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. We hear about migrants at the U.S. border all the time in the news. Those short glimpses can make us think we understand them and their situations. But do we really? When people talk about immigrants, you show a video or you show a picture and you talk about us in numbers and you show us during our worst moments of our lives. And so with Solito, I wanted to do the complete opposite. I wanted to like pump life into those flattened uh, voices. Writer Javier Zamora immigrated from El Salvador to the U.S. when he was nine years old. He traveled alone without any family members, only with the man paid to take him across the border and the other migrants in their group. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Literature has the power to take us deep into people's lives and inner thoughts in a way we often don't get from other media. Zamora returned to his childhood migration experience to write a memoir called Solito, hoping to bring more depth to his story and the stories of others like him. On stage at the festival, he's joined by Jamie Ford, the author of The Many Daughters of Afong Moi. Ford's latest novel explores the life of a Chinese woman brought to the U.S. in 1834 as a performer. He also dug into his own family history to write the book, starting with his great-grandfather who immigrated from China and worked in a mine in Nevada. Both books were selected for Read with Jenna, the Today Show co-host Jenna Bush Hager's book club. Hager interviews the authors about writing on migration and American immigrant stories. Here's Hager. Let me start with Javier. Um, As I mentioned, you write your harrowing and heartbreaking journey as a nine-year-old little boy, all by himself, migrating from El Salvador to the United States in Solito. For those that haven't read it, talk a little bit about your journey. Um, First off, thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, Let's see. I was born in 1990, and in El Salvador, we had a war from 1980 till 1992. And so when I was one years old, um, my dad left. And when I was five, in 1995, my mom left. So I was left at the care of my grandparents. And by 1997, when my parents, whenever we would talk on the phone, they would say that they would come back and be with me. By 1997, that changed, of me having to come to the United States and be with them. And they tried multiple ways to get me here. And eventually, the best. Uh, choice was using the same uh, coyote that my mom that brought my mom over in 1995 and so the book begins uh, on April 6 1999 when I'm with this coyote and my grandpa and my grandpa accompanies me all the way up to Guatemala and in Guatemala it's two weeks because the coyote promised uh, my family that the whole trip was gonna take two weeks and it's t- we're two weeks in and we're still in Guatemala my dad my grandpa had to go back and then I'm with six other immigrants who I call the six, and then we all have to figure a way to make it to the United States. And that's pretty much it. You were eight and nine years old. You were a little boy. And I think to, to live it must have been horrible, mm-hmm. but to relive it, to, to recount these details, to write this memoir, I know took a lot. Yeah, you know, 
The title of the book is Solito, and in a lot of ways, I felt alone, you know, when my parents left, um, but I wasn't really, because I was with my grandparents. And then during the trip, I felt alone, because I was with strangers, but then if you, if you read the book, these strangers become like my second family, so I wasn't really alone. The hardest thing, I think, for me, was living with the trauma of those nine weeks. And that, I truly felt alone living it for 20 years. Because I come here when, in 1999, I'm nine years old, and I don't write this book until I'm 29. And a lot of different things had to occur. One of them being getting a green card um, when I'm 28 years old, meeting my wife being another, and, like, um, and having a wonderful therapist who has helped me um, unpack a lot of this trauma that I couldn't have done alone. Jamie, um, your newest book, one that I love, um, both of these books were, and I'm not just saying this because they're sitting here with me, mm -hmm. but my favorite nonfiction of last year and my favorite historical fiction of last year. You wrote The Many Daughters of Afong Moy. Afong was the first known Chinese-American immigrant to come here. Chinese woman. Chinese woman. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess she didn't really become an American, did she? No, no. So talk to me about her story and why you decided to write about her. Yeah, uh, Afong Moy came to this country in 1834, first Chinese woman to come to America. For a, a hot minute, she was the most famous woman in America. She, written about in 200 newspapers, she performed in theaters where she sang in Chinese, she demonstrated chopsticks but she had bound feet, so that was really the sideshow attraction quality to her life here. And in all of this sensational news about her, we never hear from her. We only hear from the people who have monetized her. And then, not that long, a few years later, she disappears from headlines. And the last anyone hears about Afong is someone sees her living in a poorhouse in New Jersey. She's never heard from again. And I was always fascinated with this woman's journey, especially because there's all this excitement about her and people looked at her like this intrepid world traveler. They looked at her like this cultural ambassador, but Chinese women couldn't leave China. The punishment was death if they returned. So in all likelihood, she was sold into this life. And I wanted to give her a voice. Um, I looked at you know, how my grandmother, my great-grandmother, uh, how they were received in this country. And Afong Moy really set this exotic standard that was imprinted by other people on Asian women really to this day. And it's a, a stereotype that, uh, that Afong didn't create, but she was forced to perpetuate. And now we're all trying to move out from under that shadow. Um, you write her story, but also the daughters that oh, yeah, yeah. you imagine, the daughters that come after her. And it really is this beautiful story of what we carry. Yeah. The trauma, the intergenerational trauma, the intergenerational love. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that you were really inspired by studies that you had read. So talk a little oh. bit about, about all of that. Yeah. Um, I mean... Me and Javier, we're going to talk. We're going to share therapist stories and trauma stories. There's a screenwriter's strike, and I saw one sign, and it said, AI doesn't have a traumatic childhood. And, you know, it's true. Um, but the book is about intergenerational trauma. It's about epigenetics, inherited trauma. Um, what is epigenetics? When we think of 
genetic inheritance, we think of hair color, eye color, that kind of stuff. Epigenetics is the concept that we inherit psychological traits, uh, resiliency, phobias, um, emotional IQ, and in many ways, our ability or inability to love and care for other people. Um, we are encumbered with the trauma of our forebears. Um, it, this is something that's been, uh, it's entering the cultural zeitgeist from a bunch of different areas. But, you know, for me personally, when I was writing this book, the only person that knew what I was talking about was my therapist. <laughs> and in therapeutic world, there's a lot of therapeutic modalities to address this. But now it's, it's, it's becoming more known, understood, accepted, um, and people are having to reckon with this. And so what I did was I gave Afong Moy a fictional matrilineal line, and I show how that trauma is expressed in all these different generations, and also how Chinese women are received at different points in time. And the book actually goes to about 2045. So I've, I've given us a little bit of a hopeful future, as opposed to the AI <laughs> tent, where I'm now going <clears> to <throat> dig a doom bunker in my backyard. <laughs> yeah, and, and there is that hope. I mean, I think, you know, when we hear the words trauma, it sometimes scares us. I know that on our show, when we talk about things that are sad, sometimes people tune out. And I know that in a world that's filled with hurt and pain, the opposite of that is joy and yeah. love. And, and we meet her great, 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 I can't do the math, but you can, <laughs> um, granddaughter Dorothea, who <laughs> has decided to do what? Yeah, she is, you know, she is, uh, she's Seattle's poet laureate in the novel. She's struggling with a lot of mental health issues that I struggle with, that many of us struggle with. And she notices her daughter exhibiting the exact same behavior and actually remembering things she shouldn't remember. And so she goes through a uh, therapeutic modality to re-remember the past. Um, and even in, there's a concept, not a concept, but a, a field of quantum biology. It gets a little esoteric, but the idea that if we re-remember the past, we're actually changing the past. Um, something to, a little thought experiment. <laughs> Um, Javier, what you did in Salito is a masterpiece because you humanized, I mean, you told your story and not to put this on your shoulders, but I'm sure you've heard because I got to see, um, the lines of people that got to come and meet you and see you. You humanize the story of so many others. We can turn on our TV and see what's happening at the border, but you told your story. Uh, what do we, what would you like us to know about how we can do better by our kids, by kids like you? Huh. I know that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> well, to follow up on, on your point, I don't know where I read, but I, um, what's it, Epo? Epigenetics. Epigenetics uh, really unpacked a lot of things for me because I was carrying this trauma, but also, <laughs> and this is going to your point, Growing up undocumented, which I have been um, up until I was 21 in this country, was very difficult. And it seemed to me that the news cycle um, and politicians didn't really know how to speak about us. I remember in 2006, I don't know if you remember, there was this huge march of like the day without immigrants. And up until that point, that was the biggest um, demonstration uh, since the civil rights movement. And it was all immigrants. 
millions of people. And that seemed to do something with the American psyche. And then it was quiet. And it was 2010 when Americans learned the word undocumented. Everybody was using the I word, which you shouldn't use. And then in 2014, 2016, it was like the crisis of the kids at the border. And as a kid, an immigrant kid myself, it felt like I had been erased up until that point. And that really messed with my head. I was like, I was frustrated because finally people were finding out about kids like me, but at the same time, we were reduced and flattened to just our trauma. And every time to this day, when people talk about immigrants, you show a video or you show a picture and you talk about us in numbers and you show us during the, our worst moments of our lives. And so with Solito, I wanted to do the complete opposite. I wanted to like pump life into those flattened uh, voices and really show that we are complete human beings and that we are more than the nine weeks that it takes to get here or like the brief moment of like jumping over a fence or the day that it takes to cross the Sonoran Desert. You know, we are more than that. Oh, we should clap. <laughs> <laughs> and then I lost my cards. Um, and that's exactly, if you haven't read Salito, what you did. Thank you, Javier, so, so beautifully. Um, Jamie, your grandfather came here. Some of you may think Jamie Ford doesn't sound like a Chinese name. He actually changed his name. Mm -hmm, he did. Talk about his life and what you carry. Yeah, um, his name was Min Chung, and he came here and he changed his name to William Ford, um, as people <laughs> sometimes do to uh, try and assimilate. Um, and he worked in Nevada, he was a pioneer, he was a miner, um, and he raised a family in, in Tonopah. Um, I actually, I went to find his grave last year. I went to Tonopah, and there's a pioneer cemetery where all these famous pioneers are buried, and it's a tourist attraction. And then just off-site was the Chinese cemetery, so I wanted to go there, and when I got there, it's buried under 30 feet of mining waste. Mm. Um, and so his legacy is literally buried. Um, and so I I carry his story. It's It's... The things that, those traumas, I think at some point you can turn your pain into your superpower and, and, and unleash it on the page and create an empathy enlarging experience for the reader. And I think that's uh, in one small way um, helping to you know, move us away from the darkness, if you will. And your grandmother's story oh, yeah, is my, also. Yeah, my yin yin, my grandmother. Um, in, she was about 18 years old, so this is the mid-20s, 1924, 25. She wanted to go on a train trip from Seattle to San Francisco, and she wrote to the U.S. Immigration Department to get special permission to cross state lines. I have this document. I, I have the copy of it from the, the, the archives at Angel Island. And she was afraid that she was going to be stopped, arrested, and deported, even though she was born here. And what happened was there was a, the Mann Act was, was, was passed in 1910, which was designed to prevent women from being trafficked across borders, but it was applied mainly to women of color. If they presumed them to be a prostitute, 
even if they're married, they could arrest both of those people. And so that was the reality of my grandfather's, I mean, grandmother's life. This isn't, you know, this isn't uh, pre-Civil War times. This is not that long ago. And so our society still has these echoes that we're hearing and the next generation is hearing. And some people, they're sympathetic and um, other people, they, you know, they have harder hearts and they, they turn a deaf ear. And I think what I think sometimes we forget the power of of literature to change minds to open hearts. Yeah. Um, Javier, when you got to go on book tour across this country, what did you find? I know people, many people, uh, saw themselves in your story. Um, you know, I, I like to say that Salvadorans have made it in a lot of ways because we have pupusas in. Whole Foods. <laughs> you know, we, we had an astronaut stuck in space uh, who's also Salvadoran. And I guess I needed to see it that we are everywhere. And I remember being, I think, in Indiana or Ohio, like in a place where I never heard of Salvadorans being. <laughs> but they were there. Um, and it was in one of those places where... Yeah, it's happened multiple times. Not once, not five, I want to say eight individuals whom I've met who crossed the border from El Salvador in 1999, in May or June. And three of those were nine years old. So, and what they told me was that they felt alone. They felt like nobody else had gone through what they had gone through, which is what trauma does to you. That's exactly what I felt. And I, because I felt that way, I wasn't the kindest person to be around because I didn't have a therapist yet. Um, <laughs> and there and, was shame, and right? There, there is a lot of shame. And I just, but also having individuals or the book that I wrote and being like all of you, like if there's another immigrant in the crowd, like seeing me up here on stage does a lot to you. And to me, because finally we're getting the media coverage on our own terms. It's not the, this flat anything that I just talked about. And time and time again, people thank me for doing that work, which I never thought that this was going to happen. I'm like living my best dream, you know, and you had a huge part in doing that. So thank you. Um, but yeah, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> um, one of the things that I loved about both of your books is they you, you write a lot about the American dream. Uh, Javier, let's start with you. I know on your, on your journey, you expected things from Los Estados Unidos that didn't really exist. So what, talk about expectations versus reality. I just love how you like pronounce, you try to pronounce like Tonito Los Estados Unidos. I tried, like, I it's tried. So and everybody should try. Yeah, it's really good. Oh. Everybody should try. Uh, try, I like the word try. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as a nine-year-old, I was expecting Baywatch. Uh, I, I, I was expecting Full House, you know, 90210. That's the idea of the United States that I had. And that's what I wholeheartedly believe I was signing up for. And there's this idea, and then there's the reality. And those two things didn't match up for me for a long time. 
and they didn't match up. For me, even though as an undocumented uh, person, I graduated from the, at the time, number one public university in the world, which is UC Berkeley. And then I go to the most expensive university in the world, NYU, at that time. And then I go to Stanford, one or number two. And then I go to Harvard, <laughs> one or number two. And like, I, I still, I'm not, I still don't have a green card. I finally get it when I'm at Harvard. And it's like this idea of checking the boxes of what it means to be a good immigrant or to be living an idea of a dream. And still, I felt so empty. And I felt so empty because I hadn't processed all of those things that I stacked on top of one another over the 20 years. And at the bottom line were these nine weeks. And so I think this is the fir very first step of unpacking and learning about myself. And literature helped me literally put myself in my own shoes, which I hadn't done and I wasn't ready to do. And once I did it, I feel better. And I think finally, I'm getting to enjoy truly what this country has done for me, which I am also very aware, had I stayed in El Salvador, I couldn't be who I am. And that is the 100% reality, that that's why people are fleeing yeah. and still coming to this country. Because in one generation, you know, I grew up without running water in dirt floors. In one generation, that kid could go to Harvard and like be an Aspen, talking to you guys, <laughs> which is wild. It's yeah. wild to me. And I'm living it. Yeah. Um, Jamie, I know that you've learned a lot about identity and what it means, the American dream from your family, but also <clears throat> I'm sure you have the uh, studying Afong. Yeah. It isn't as simple as I think sometimes we think. I, I think people can come to this country who are not born here, become citizens, contribute magnificently to our country, and still be seen as, in many ways, a lesser. Or maybe they, they still feel that, because we, we're, not, we're not represented in uh, the foundational idea of this country. Um, the signatories of the, uh, you know, our, our founding documents, they're all white men. And that's the archetype of what a true American is. And everything else, that's our measuring stick. Um, this is the Aspen Ideas Festival. I, I do think it would be useful if, this is a crazy idea, bear with me. <laughs> Somewhere between status quo and crazy idea <laughs> is this beautiful space to improve the world. I think we should add, maybe every 20 years, add new co-signers to our constitution. Mm. Provocative uh -oh. idea, okay? We don't, we don't change it. We don't uh. sign the actual document, create a facsimile, have a ceremony at the White House. And the people that are nominated are, um, there's a, there's a, a, a Filipino-American poet, and there's this line from the, this poem that says, I'm humbled in the presence of the veterans, not the ones who picked up their guns, but those who picked up their brethren. Find the people who are uplifting our society, moving us forward as a culture, and have them become a codified caretaker of the American dream. And the argument is, well, they didn't write it. Well, guess what? Neither did the founding fathers. James Madison <laughs> wrote it. The other 38 guys that signed that did not write that. I'm like, well, I mean, picture uh, someone like uh, Maria Reza. Have her sign that, right? Nobel Prize winner. She's fighting for democracy the world over. And people say, well, she wasn't born here. Well, guess what? 
20% of the signatories weren't born here. So I just think there's things we can do where we expand this canvas of what it is to be an American. And then we aren't seen as the token success. We are the accepted norm. And I think um, something like that is, is uh, I would... I would advocate for that, clearly. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, as you can tell, uh, Jamie is an incredible thinker. And he, and he says this about his writing, which now that I've had the chance to read a few of his books and gotten to be on Zooms with him and get to know him as a human, I know it to be true. He says, you say, I'll speak of it, that you are in the compassion creation business. Yeah, I think, and I think Javier would agree. Yeah. We're in the compassion creation business, brother. You know, <laughs> this is, I mean, someone can write books about car crashes and asteroid collisions, but I, I want to write empathy enlarging experiences. And there's a deficit in our culture right now. And I think it's, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, throwing a stone into uh, the ocean and you think it doesn't matter, but it matters to me. It matters like I'm spending my life in a, in a way that seems worthy um, and is an example for my children and in a way that, you know, I'm, I feel the same way you are. I'm, I am standing on the sunburn, broken shoulders of my grandfather. I am his greatest dream come true, and I need to do something with that. Okay, now I'm crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just so beautiful. Um, I think one of the things that has been such a gift to me is that our mission for, with Read with Jenna right away has been to highlight debut and diverse authors, authors who historically haven't always been heard, whose marketing money isn't going at them like crazy. Um, and, and somebody once said, well, who's your favorite? Like, which author has, has you connected with the most? And I'm not kidding, every single one has been a beautiful gift to me, to our audience, to our book club members, because I think what I'm interested in is our books about, about compassion, about empathy. And we know that reading a story like Javier's or reading about Afong can open people's minds and can, can start conversation, which then can change people. Um, so it's like, it's so weird, but I'm like, every single one has been an incredible gift. And now I know you can see why. Um, Javier, you talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but I love how you say you wanted to create this three-dimensional, I mean, you just wrote your story, but what you did in Solito is also talked about the joy, about the humanity that you experience during this really tricky time. And you dedicate your book uh, to a, a group of people, one of whom carried you, literally put you on their back when your little nine-year-old feet could not walk anymore. Talk about uh, your found family and why you dedicate the book to them. Um, in the book, I call them the four, and their names are Chino, which, you know, Latinos were racist as well. <laughs> um, I must say that. Um, and her name is Patricia, which I did not make this up. Is also my mom, my mom's name. There was this woman who had my mom's name right there, who also took care of me. And her daughter Carla, who was three years older than me, she must have been twelve. Um, and you know, I I had a book of poems that came out in 2017, 
And in that book of poems, I only talk about Chino once in the 88 pages. And how I talk about him, I describe him getting beat up by Border Patrol agents. And here I was critiquing the system or immigration politics, but then I had also internalized that. And the way that I chose to portray this human being was the exact same thing that I was critiquing, what I was watching in the news. Does that make sense? And that ate away at me. And I think prose became the mechanism. I had never written prose before in which you could really not only highlight the trauma, but you could think of different scenes and put these people in joy, in joyous moments. Like I remember having fart wars with, <laughs> with, with Patricia, which is like a bonding moment in the weirdest way possible. Um, like eating really, perhaps like it was perhaps not the best fish ever, but to us because we were so hungry eating fried fish in Acapulco. And just like moments like that, that I couldn't do in poetry and that I hadn't allowed myself to get to, but th that actually did happen. And that these people deserve to be portrayed in those ways as well. You dedicate the book to them. And mm -hmm. I know one of your hopes <laughs> by publishing it and getting to travel around would, would be that maybe they would reach out to you. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't happened, and it's uh, the most asked questions. I, every day I get DMs. Have you found a fool? Have you found it? And I, I know. Say, I, was, I didn't even really want to ask it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've also gotten offers of headhunters who are like, I would do pro bono work and find them for you. And I don't, I don't think I would want that. I think it's on their own terms. You know, everybody who has gone through any sort of trauma has their own path. And you can't force somebody uh, to look in the mirror. And for myself, you know, it took so many years for me to be able to even remember the nine weeks and talk about it. And for a lot of immigrants, even my parents, my parents still haven't told me their own stories because it's super difficult um, to just tell even like a family member. So I don't know. I think once they're ready, um, I don't even know if they're alive, but if they're alive, I think it's going to take them being ready to face what I describe uh, for them reaching out. Um, one of the things that was so cool about getting to speak with Javier after he pub before he published this book was that I got to see his journal entries from when he first came to this country. And um, talk, I, and I think people might think, how could you write this memoir years later? Um, but you did a lot to, to get there, including, you know, therapy and, and looking back at those journals? Um, California wasn't a liberal haven, you know, how, how we think of it now. In 1998, they had a very anti-immigrant bill. And I just so happened to come here in 1999. And the backlash was actually quite good because in Marin County, which at the time was the fourth richest county in the world, um, in Marin, they had this program for unaccompanied children who were in the school systems. And they signed me up with a therapist that I had to meet with once a week for 10 weeks. And over these 10 weeks, it's a wild concept, right? Every kid should get a fucking therapist. <laughs> uh, and so, and what this therapist did, I didn't know how to speak English yet. So she would ask me questions in Spanish and she tricked me 
Because first, she would just, like, have me draw. And slowly, over the 10 weeks, she would have me draw the scenes that I had just survived. And so then, after the 10 weeks, we made this book that I still have um, with my drawings and her handwriting about the nine weeks. And it's called Javier's Journey. This is before Enrique's Journey, so I published it first <laughs> as a nine-year-old. And, and that, to me... It was just drawing. But every time that I opened that book years later, it just broke my heart. Because I was frozen in time. And I could really see the pain that this nine-year-old and what he had gone through. Um, but it also did something that I didn't expect. It made me put, think that I had processed that trauma and literally put it away under my bed and not talk about it ever again. It's like, oh, here it was, I've done that, I've talked about it, I've drawn it. As a nine-year-old kid, I am fine, I am normal. I don't need to think about that. And then it comes back, it bites you in the ass every single time. Um, and just to follow up on that, I mean, you moved to Marin County, as you mentioned, one of the wealthiest parts of the country. And, and I know your expectations <laughs> were Baywatch, but then, <laughs> That is not um, where you found your family. And I, I just want to hear, because actually, when I was reading your story, it feels like probably the most alone you felt was when you reached here yeah. in some ways. Yeah. Um, talk about that living in Moran and sort of how you found your parents and, and all of that. You know, a scene that I erased from the end of the book is my parents... Um, we take a plane because it's before 9-11, so you can fly with like a U.S. passport, I mean a Salvadoran passport. And so we take a plane, and we land, and we cross the Golden Gate. And then it's beautiful Marine County, if you haven't been there, it's kind of like Aspen. <laughs> and, then, and then we're on the 101, and there are these houses on the hills. I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, that's what <laughs> And then we take an exit, and then it's just what I now know to be apartment building after apartment building and no trees. The hills are all green. There are rarely any trees. And then we go and park in this concrete uh, asphalt place. And we park there and we walk towards apartment number two. And my parents open the door and my dad still breaks down when, I, when he remembers this. And what I tell my dad is, oh, where is the home? Where are we going? And my dad just cries. He's a crier. He's a Pisces. <laughs> and, he and he just like breaks down. And they live in a two-bedroom apartment that they rent the living room to a family. They rent uh, one of the rooms to two men. And so my world in El Salvador was huge, was expansive. I could just like run everywhere. We had two cans in the, in the, in the backyard. We have cornfields. And then in, the, in San Rafael, California, my whole world is crunched. Like, I don't have space anymore. My parents don't even let me go to the park because the park is dangerous. And that didn't, like, it didn't compute. It didn't make sense. Um, I think, you know, we know that the headlines are filled with images, um, as we already discussed, of our border. Jamie, you tweeted a picture, which was a juxtaposition of the attention that the <coughs> submarine, the recent submarine, got versus a migrant uh, boat that sank off the coast of Greece. Yeah, that was upsetting. Um, it was to see one 
all loss of life, tragic. Yeah. Um, I'm not, it's not what this is about, but it was just so much was atten- so much attention was on, and p- perhaps it's because of the, the very horrific way that you know, we envisioned them perishing, so much attention on them. But these other people also perished equally horrifically and in a greater scale. And that's just that day. You know, something's coming up next month again and again and again. And we are so numb to that. You know, five deaths is tragic. 500 deaths, it's a statistic. And it's heartbreaking and, to be fair, a little enraging. <laughs> My wife is like, okay, don't go to Aspen and just burn the place down. <laughs> Wait, by the way, his wife is sitting and yeah. just recognized her over here. She's taping it, so yeah. we have proof if he does. Because <laughs> yeah. she knows I'm a compassionate person, but there's a fire in there that's just like angered for, for justice. Um, I mean, and it was the Titanic, which made me, made, I mean, this is ancillary to that. Does anyone know that there were Chinese people on the Titanic? There were eight Chinese people on the Titanic. Six of them survived. And when they were all put on the Carpathia, which took the, you know, the survivors to New York, they were taken and deported. Everyone else was oh you know, in the news and interviewed, and they were kicked out of this country. So that was in the back of my mind as I'm watching all of this as well. Uh, so I, I think it would be so helpful um, to, to, when you know you have that rage and you read mm. these headlines and you see, uh, uh, Javier, as you beautifully put, these stories sort of reduced to flatness that does not um, express your true life. Um, uh, how do you take that rage and create um, what you do? Both of you, either of you. <laughs> oh, um, I, I, I guess I believe in the concept of the power of positive anger. There's a difference between anger and rage. Rage is out of control. Anger is, I'm going to use this as fuel to try to affect change. Um, not, not for me, but for all the other people like me that come along down the road. Um, and that's it becomes this responsibility that you have. And some people, we're still processing our own stuff, and that's, that's a lot to expect. But it's, it's, it's there. Um, and I think it's, that's how I view it. Javier? I struggle with that. You know, I'm very angry. I'm a very angry individual still. Um, and I think so many things had to happen. And reading Haruki Murakami's um, running book, I highly recommend it, in which he says the process of writing prose is kind of like running a marathon. And for me, that makes a lot of sense. And I think writing very dramatic passages makes you angry, and you have to take that energy and put it elsewhere. And for me, exercising is that thing, one of the many things in which I do that. Um, it has to be physical. Before I was a writer, I wanted to be a soccer player. And I was a pretty good soccer player because in the soccer field, you can tackle the fuck out of you. <laughs> and, and, and as an undocumented kid, I enjoyed it. 
you know? <laughs> and so that is the type of, like, aggression, like, okay aggression, um, that needs to occur and that I think is, is healthy. Um, and it's still a practice that, that I carry on with me, and I think I would have to carry on with me for the rest of my life because the anger doesn't go anywhere because a lot of things don't change. A lot of things have gotten worse, you know? Um, and so you must have an outlet. Like, I think everybody needs to really analyze what that outlet is and to cherish it because it's necessary. Um, I want to turn to you all because, oh, look, no. I mean, <laughs> this is the best class. Um, okay. Wow. Okay, great. Um, so, yes. And please say your name, too. Sorry, that was fast. Hello. Uh, my name is Aimee Nunez. I'm with the Basel Scholars Program. Um, I'm an educator in the Rio Grande Valley, which is a border area to Mexico. Um, and I work with immigrant students year, year in and out um, in the college counseling arena. And so my biggest question to you as, um, and just hearing your stories is, what do you hope to see from the adults in the school building for our students who do come in as undocumented or migrant students? Javier. For them to be honest, um, a lot of individuals in my life, they think that by lying about the realities that these kids are facing is going to make things better. But just telling it how it is, you're going to have, like, if you're 17 and you got to this country, it's going to be very difficult for you to graduate and then to figure out life after graduation. Just like saying that. It's actually doing a better service than lying to that kid and be like, oh, everything's going to be okay. Some things aren't. And, and the individuals that actually got to me when I was very angry were the people that knew not to lie. And so I, that's, I think, what adults should do to kids. Just don't lie to them. Hi there. Um my name is Chip Edens. I'm an Episcopal priest in Charlotte, North Carolina, and our church is very supportive of the influx of families that are coming to Charlotte. I'm listening uh, to you talk about trauma, and I'm also struck by the need for sort of cultural competency with therapists. And I'm, I wonder if you could sort of speak to that and, and what that looks like and, and how, we can, you know, how we can make sure that's happening. Thank you. Yeah, good question. That's a great question. <laughs> Cultural competency. That's a, you know, I, I don't, I want to be honest, a lot of people think that I just met one therapist and changed my life. No, I've been in therapy since I was in seventh grade. I've had, I think, the count is 12, 13 therapists over my life. Only two of them were, looked like me. Uh, the rest were white. Um, only one of them is also an immigrant herself, and it's the one that I'm with now. I think for some people, and I'm not saying, but for me, that needed to happen. I needed to see myself reflected in a therapist in order for me to not lie to them, because lying is also, has also been a coping mechanism for me and for a lot of immigrants, because we learn to lie in order to survive. We learn to lie about our nationalities on the way up here. We learn to lie yes. about our legal status in order to survive. And so lying comes easy. And I knew that Wendy Carolina Franco, you can Google her, she's 
<laughs> not taking any patients. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, she came here when she was four from the Dominican Republic, and she struggled. And she's also not a traditional therapist in which no other therapist had told me about their lives, and she's okay with that. And I again, talking about the honesty. She's just honest about the things that she has survived and hasn't. And the moment that she broke that wall, I was like, oh, shit, this is going to work. I love this person. Um, and now we just had a session of, like, now I'm, like, scared. Well, are you going to retire? When do you, like, what's going to happen? <laughs> like, I'm not fucking going anywhere. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it's important. It's important uh, to see yourself represented in all aspects of life. Yeah. You know, as Salvadorans, we have an astronaut now. Uh, I hope there are therapists, there are teachers, there are writers now. You know, we have TV shows. Um, it, all those things are important. And um, I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Oh, um, in Seattle, there's the Asian Mental Health Center. Um, I belong to an organization that supports that. And it's free because the, it's, there are cultural concerns that are different. This young person coming out to their parents who are German versus this young person coming out to their parents who are Japanese. It's a different experience. Um, and having someone, therapy is about trust. And having someone that looks like you, that has the same cultural background, appreciates those struggles, there's, there's, there's an emotional shorthand at work that you don't have to explain. Sometimes it's just there when it's a good fit. And can I just say, uh, Javier was the first El Salvadorian to hit the New York Times bestseller list. So, representation matters across all boards, including in literature, and both of these um, incredible authors are, are doing that. Sorry, and we have a lot. We'll get to everybody. We'll just keep it quick. Is are we allowed to do that in Aspen? We can go a little over? Okay. Can we? Uh-oh, she looks worried. Okay. <laughs> this is Saktia Pai uh, from the Community Development YMCA of Great Long Beach. Um, I work with, I immigrated to the U.S. from Cambodia 10 years ago. Um, and I work with undocumented population in Long Beach. Long Beach has one of the largest undocumented populations. And we have some Ukrainian uh, uh, refugee who arrived in Long Beach too. Um, I didn't have a question. I just want to genuinely thank you for your profound, both of your profound story and compassionate wisdom. Because this country, if we are not Native American, we are all immigrants. It's still the land of immigrants. But to have your profound story and your compassionate hope and wisdom give us the compassionate hopes that this country needs to, to cope moving forward, navigating through all the challenges. So I want to thank you, thank you, and thank you. Mm -hmm. thank you. you made my yes. wife cry. I know. You made his wife cry and you made me cry. <laughs> Hi, I'm Vicky Munoz. I'm with the uh, Bezos Family um, Scholars. And like Javier, I'm, I'm Salvadorian. I, my story is very similar to you. I, I came here in 1988. Um, I always say I came here, but my parents brought me here. Uh, I didn't ask to come. Um, and one, thank you so much. I have so many notes to take. So many things that you said that I'm like, I need to work through that. that oh my gosh, that's, yes, that's it. Put a big circle. Where's my highlighter? Um, I'm a teacher. <laughs> and so I want to say 
thank you so much for sharing your story for not just Salvadorians, but Nicaraguans and Guatemalans. Uh, we cross many borders, but I want to ask you, it's something that I, I haven't done yet. Have you gone back to El Salvador? And what was that process like? Because everyone tells me that you had to mentally and emotionally get ready for that too. So how? A beautiful you question. Thank you. Um, I didn't, um, I didn't go in the best, like the first time that I went back was because I had to self-deport because um, my visa, uh, the green card that I have is called an Extraordinary Abilities Visa or an Einstein Visa. But because I came here the way that I did, I couldn't interview at, the, at, at a consulate in this country. So I had to self-deport and pretend like I hadn't lived in the United States for 20 years. I had to do like all these tests and, and then go not knowing whether I was going to be granted the visa. And if I wasn't, I couldn't reapply for 10 years. So I was scared. How, how old were you? <laughs> I was 28. Yeah. Uh, and so that was 2018, which also happened to be the year after the El Salvador had the highest murder rate in the world. So a lot of things, <laughs> what the fuck am I doing here? Uh, so it was very hard. Uh, I've gone back five other times. It's been six. Um, I realized that I didn't miss the country. It's not the country that I missed. It is my family. And it's my grandparents. And I love that now I have the agency and the ability and the privilege to go visit them twice a year. Because they're, my grandpa's still alive. He's still burning trash. Um, <laughs> he loves burning stuff. He's like a little pirate. Um, and he's 85. And my grandma is 76. And so, you know, there are limited times that I can visit them. And I know that. And I want to visit them as much as possible. And I don't care about anything else that's happening in my country. All I care about is them. Okay, wait. Last question. But can we just do three questions really fast? <laughs> I should have taken more time. Okay, quick. Yes. And then we'll just do it really fast. Okay, fast. <laughs> About the power of storytelling and changing minds. My name is Frankie Miranda. I'm the president and CEO of Hispanic Federation. I want to ask you, what has been the most unexpected feedback that you have gotten from somebody that you never expected to receive feedback from? Oh, unexpected feedback? <laughs> um, boy, um, short answer. I went to a book event Early on, there was one person there, and that person had just buried their father the previous day. And the book was about the Japanese internment. Her father was in that same internment camp, and we had a moment. Um, and so it's not that you have to be something to everyone, and that day I was everything to someone, and that mm. meant a lot. Wow. Okay, we'll be quick. I know, I'm getting in trouble. I'm never going to be asked back again. Yeah. And, and, and for me, the, the short answer oh, yeah, to that sorry. is uh, putting caliche, which is Salvadoran Spanish, on it. Yeah. I, I get thanked all the time. Oh. 
Uh, I'm Deva Shub. I run the Children's Museum in Manhattan, and so I'm just thinking about children all of the time, and your story is so powerful. And uh, looking at the research biases uh, embedded within kids as young as three, we're looking at all of these asylum-seeking families in New York. I I'm just wondering if you have shared your story with children, if you would. Um, you mentioned Javier's journey, the, the sort of foundational <laughs> piece of it. And I just think there's such, um, such a journey of empathy and power and agency in there that, that would do so much for both children who have had any sort of similar lived experience and actually maybe even more powerfully for those who don't understand it but are in yeah. their classrooms and don't know why they don't speak their language or understand why they don't come to school in new clothes every day. And I just wonder if you've done that or if you would consider sharing your story. Yeah. Um, I haven't done the little kids. I, I've, done, <laughs> I've done seventh grade and above, I think, for the content. Of yeah. Um, but I, I would say that what I've seen works best is when recent arrivals are in their own assembly. When they're like lumped together with the regular kids, for lack of a better term, um, it doesn't really work because there's a lot of snickering and like kids are mean. And so this hasn't changed. Uh, US born kids are still making fun of recent arrivals, even though they look like each other. Um, and so I would just have like an assembly just for them and an assembly for the other students. Okay, last question. I, I promise. <laughs> yes. Is this working? Okay. Hi, my name is Jordano Slema. I am with the Bezos Scholars Program as a Bezos Scholar. Um, I just want to say thank you so much because I am 17 or 16 turning 17 soon. Um, <laughs> I am first gen um, Ethiopian American and also hopefully first gen to have a college degree and go to college. Yay! Um, <laughs> and with that, I know a lot of first gen kids have um, problems like me. I've had issues with imposter syndrome and you've touched on that a little bit. Um, what advice would you give to um, first gen kids like me and other ones um, on imposter syndrome and how would you if you, we don't have access to therapy or um, anything like that, how do you think is the best way for us to face our issues without ignoring them? Um, I, would, I would say, and I say this, I visit a lot of high schools and I, I, I say this, the things when you're young that you feel are your weaknesses are actually your superpowers when you get older. You, it'll give you a well of compassion that you can that you can use for, for good purposes and, and understanding other people. So I, I, yeah, I was that kid that struggled in high school that I, I didn't think anybody liked me, it didn't matter. Um, but because of that, um, I'm a good observer of human behavior. Um, and so sometimes you can lean into it instead of leaning away from it, as long as you know, it's, a, it's a mental health challenge, obviously, but that's what I always recommend. Um, just remind yourself, for me, what was hard was being in these rooms and thinking that my family members were going to feel bad about me entering all these rooms. And then once I got a green card, and my, the ones that I always go to are my grandparents. And now I have the ability to go over there and tell them all the cool things that I'm doing, and they're happy for me. There's no animosity there that I think we internalize. And there's just, just remember that your ancestors are so happy for you and that you're making them proud. And just continue to make them proud. And also I would journal. 
Yeah. Uh, mm. Just like journal, journal, journal. You don't even have to write, just draw. Drawing is usually like, how do you process things if you don't have access to mental health? Drawing and remember your answers. Because they're, they're making them proud. Javier Zamora is an author and poet. Born in El Salvador, he migrated on his own to America when he was nine. His first poetry collection, Unaccompanied, and his memoir, Solito, explore the themes of the Salvadorian Civil War, family separation, and immigration. Jamie Ford is the author of Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, which spent over two years on the New York Times bestseller list. It also won the 2010 Asian Pacific American Award for Literature. His other novels are The Many Daughters of Afong Moy, Songs of Willow Frost, and Love and Other Consolation Prizes. Jenna Bush Hager is co-host of Today with Hoda and Jenna on NBC. She joined Today as a correspondent and contributor in 2009. Hager is also the author or co-author of several books. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.